and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the podcast, we're pleased to welcome special guest, renowned economist Don Drummond. Don has held several senior roles at the Federal Department of Finance, including Associate Deputy Minister, where he was responsible for economic analysis and fiscal and tax policies. Don says the bank believes in a model where creating slack in the economy will, over time, reduce inflation. The BOC also expressed confidence in its strategy, indicating that the first step of creating slack in the economy has been accomplished. But Don also points out the market tends to anticipate economic changes positioning itself in advance. He says the clock for these changes has just started, whereas people initiated this countdown a year or two earlier. This podcast was recorded on January 25th, 2024. Okay, what is the governor talking about in terms of waiting to see whether inflation, in fact, has gone down the other? Where, where could inflation be coming from? Otherwise, he would have cut if he wasn't worried. Well, I think a, the central thing in their monetary report that virtually everybody's missed until now, until the end of 2023, in the Bank of Canada's view, aggregate demand in the economy exceeded aggregate supply. And so you have an endless list of analyst notes saying, well, the economy's weak, therefore inflation should be going down, therefore the Bank of Canada should be cutting it. But in the Bank of Canada's view, even though the growth rates were weak, the level of activity was high. For the first time with this report, they're saying at the end of 2023, finally, aggregate demand fell below, not a lot below, but a bit below aggregate supply. So really the clock is only this whole model, you create slack in the economy and that will ultimately with a lag bring down inflation. In the Bank of Canada's terms, that clock just started in the fourth quarter of 2023. Others seem to think it's been going on for a long time, but we've they've cleared out the excess aggregate demand in the economy with the economy being flat for a couple of quarters right now. So in terms of the underlying conditions, they have to be relatively comfortable that this is going to work. First step has been ticked off. You have to create a bit of slack in the economy. And they noted help wanted index and and the like has slackened off a bit on the labor force. But, you know, you're not seeing the result yet. Inflation is still higher than they want. Wage increases are higher. They never anticipated they'd be contemporaneous. But at least the game's on now. Some slack is there. It's like a classic, the, the stock market will see through these things, you know, and, and position itself ahead of time. And the actual economy will go at a different rate, obviously. So, I mean, a lot of equities have been expecting this sort of getting through either inventory or the whole supply demand thing going in a different direction. We've been reading through the, the equity story that that's already getting priced in. But the economy, as you say, the clock has just started. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah I would say the distinction is, People started the clock about a year ago, and they started about a year too early. Okay. They've sort of been wondering, well, the economy is so weak as of the end of 2022. Why is inflation not coming down even more? Well, the reason is, yes, the growth rates were weak, but the level of activity in both output and in the labor market was still relatively robust. And as the bank again had noticed, one of the reasons is the United States economy is proving to be very resilient in the face of the higher interest rates. They've got a pretty good growth rate going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's interesting. It's not being restrained in in certain in some of the same ways. Now it's a different story in Canada. Uh, there's a lot of discussions about, and this gets into a conversation that you know can be endless. But 
you know, is it a sort of a politically linked thing? Do cuts have to happen in the U.S. before a November election? Do they not? Do they need to be too close or too far or whatever? We don't really have that in Canada. I mean, unless something happens in our government, which it could. But um, it's not really that sort of timing thing. What, what do you think everyone's kind of getting all um, prognosticating about with the timing of cuts this year? Are they coming this year? If that is yeah. your belief? Well, with your comment that we don't get involved in the political aspects of monetary policy, I can't help but thinking that the first time the Bank of Canada stopped raising interest rates, the Minister of Finance said how pleased she was with that. I don't ever remember anybody commenting on monetary policy to that extent. That That's pretty direct, and we haven't heard anything like that since. I think the Bank of Canada will be left to do what they think should be done. They have to be looking, and, and they say in the monetary report, they do think we'll return to the 2% inflation target, albeit not till 2025, and they've been very consistent. We don't need to wait for 2% inflation to be recorded before we're going to cut interest rates. There's lags on the upside and there's lags on the downside. So I think they're getting closer. I don't think that they'll cut interest rates in the March, but I, I think there's a good possibility they will by April. But, you know, they emphasize a lot of the inflation is coming through shelter and food prices, and they expect that to continue to be a source. But they have their own measures, three measures of core inflation. All three of them are between three and a half and four percent. And the key driver of inflation, wage costs, they note they're increasing by four to five. That's a bit of a puzzle because one of the main indicators of wage pressures is from the labor force survey in the December wage survey had wages up 5.3%. So that's not four to five. I've been quibbling a little bit, hmm. but we have very little productivity growth. And if you've got wages going up four to 5%, unit labor costs are growing quite rapidly. And that suggests we'll have some ongoing inflation. Also, the other thing the banking Canada clearly doesn't like is their own survey of business leaders suggests that business leaders expect inflation to stay in the three to three and a half percent range over the next two years. I'm sure they would really like to see the business leaders believe that. You get to some degree equity markets and bond markets believing in it, but clearly you have business leaders thinking there's still some more inflation to be wrung out of the system. Why do they think that? I probably looking at their own wage increases. Ah. Uh, if you're sitting in there and you know, you're labor intensive financial sector, let's pick it as an example, it's very labor intensive. Uh, if your wage costs are going up by four and 5%, um, you kind of got to hope you can increase your product prices by at least three to three and a half percent to try to recoup that. The um, Bank of Canada governor did, did go into the discussion of housing, got into it, basically said there's no quick fix from either fiscal or monetary on high house prices. Um, if that's what is the priority, I mean, a lot of homeowners don't necessarily want their prices to go down depending on when they bought their home and so on, but they did wade into that conversation saying there's no quick fix, didn't they? There are a few places that are more diplomatic than the Bank of Canada. They hardly ever criticize anybody, particularly the governments, but you had to detect a, a note of criticism when they're talking about shelter prices. And, and of course, we have to get into the statistical perversity of the CPI because one of the major drivers in pushing up shelter prices is ironically the Bank of Canada's interest rates because mortgage costs are a big weight in that. So, and as people are turning over their fixed rates and, and their variable rates uh, get caught up, that will continue to be a pressure for some time. But the Bank of Canada is very explicit 
that we have pressure in housing prices and we have pressure particularly in rental prices from the very rapid population growth. And as they note, population in Canada has gone up 3% over the last year. We're used to at most 1% population growth. It's been that for a very, very long time. And if you think about it, we build just over 200,000 housing starts in Canada per year. And if you count the foreign students on visa and you count the temporary foreign workers, we're bringing in 700 or 800,000 people in some quarters, even more of that in annual rate, uh, supply and demand. <laughs> uh, that, that's a big increase in demand relative to a very small increase in supply. And the Bank of Canada says, well, of course, all the policies we've seen recently should help, but it'll take a while. Well, the policies are not going to be generating 700, 800,000 housing starts, so that's going to continue to be a problem. The other thing I found, I was very pleased at another reference they made to population growth because we're so used to just looking at the gross domestic product and everybody says, well, gross real GDP has been flat of late. And they say, well, it's actually worse than that because we're, if we have 3% population growth, that at a minimum, the economy should be growing by 3%. So if it's flat, we're actually having real GDP per capita go down by 3%. And if we're not going to be on a 1% population growth, we really need to change the metrics and the way we think about the economy and think much more in per capita terms. Uh, it's not good enough to have an economy growing one or even 2% if your population is going to grow by 3%. That suggests that the people coming in are not getting gainfully employed and producing income for themselves and for the rest of the economy. How long does it take for, on average, I'm sure you look at these numbers and statistics and you know, how long does it take for those coming into uh, our country, but you know, probably other countries too, to to sort of get into the meaningful employment that 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 is, that is the potential based on everything to do with education, experience, and so on. Yeah, well, we we're still used to there was very reliable results until about the end of 1980, and and over that period, the majority of our immigrants came from Europe, particularly Western Europe and the United States, same languages educational institutions we're familiar with, certifications we we're familiar with, and that integration process was fairly smooth and fairly rapid. Uh, it is more challenged right now. Uh, we have people with degrees that we don't recognize and they have to go back and redo them or they do things that they're not trained in. So the process is longer right now. Okay. And of course, for all very good reasons, we've been bringing in a large numbers of refugees and that yeah. integration into the workforce takes some additional time as well and provide a need for income support. Ask you just a couple, there's like Crescent's rolling in here. So we're, we're gonna go back just briefly to the connection to the housing market here that you made. Um, so this question is, do you see a lot of mortgage defaults this year? I mean, what what are the banks going to do? And and people with mortgages, what, what what's sort of the, what's your thought? This transition so far, and I emphasize so far to the higher mortgage rates has been phenomenal, almost shocking. There are very few mortgages in arrears and there's even fewer in default. And for the most part, when things have been going into default, they get in the industry, they would say cured, uh, i.e. they typically would sell it fairly readily. Mm -hmm. And this is including, you know, we see the office of the superintendent of financial institutes hates, hates, hates these variable mortgage rates with fixed interest payments because of course the payments are, are not going up and the people are not paying the principal. And when that changes, they're gonna get a very, very rude shock. But a lot of them have already transitioned over the higher rates and they're continuing to pay their mortgages. 
Now, we know that that's not coming without sacrifice. It's coming with tremendous sacrifice. Goodbye holidays, uh, goodbye uh, filling your car, probably goodbye to going to restaurants, on, on and on and on, goodbye to buying clothes. We know it's hurting, but they are not putting their mortgages, so far are not putting their mortgages at risk. I don't want to seem complacent about this. We've got a lot more action to come on that front. In part, that's the psychology in Canada, and it's different in the United States. We have historically, even if you look in the early 1980s, the vicious housing cycle in Calgary in the late 1980s in, in Toronto, we did not have a lot of mortgages go into default. Um, that doesn't tend to be the Canadian way to do it. Maybe in part because in Canada, when you default, you're not going to get another loan anytime too soon. In the United States, you default, and the next day you got 21 credit cards in, in your mailbox. We're, we don't tend to operate that same way. Maybe it's just part of a culture that uh, we honor that and, and we honor those debts. So, and, and of course we didn't have like the meltdown. Getting, I feel like you're getting out of this question. Do you expect a lot of people? <laughs> I, I, I would just say we've not had as many as I would expect so far. And I would expect that because I think the, although there's lags and people still have to turn over their fixed rates, I would think building on that history, we're not going to have a huge problem, but we're going to see consumption constrained because they're going to have to squeeze other things to continue to pay their mortgages. Really interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Um, when you take a look at um, the productivity discussion and we're not seeing the growth there, what do you put it down to? There's, there's a lot of discussion of productivity right now. And I know there's a lot of different reasons. It's hard to answer with one sentence, but, but give us some color to why this is so. Yeah, I can peel away the first layer and then I get stuck. The first layer is the absence of business investment. Okay. Uh, our business investment, particularly in things like software, has always been inferior to other countries, particularly the United States. And um, why is that? Like, what, well, what's going okay, on? Okay, that, that, was, that was my first layer. And then as I advertise, I, I get stuck. Why is that? Um, it, we used to have very unfriendly capital consumption allowance breaks on taxes. We don't anymore. Um, we're along with other countries. The tax depreciation is lined up with economic depreciation. We used to have a corporate tax rate that was higher in most other countries. We don't. We're competitive on that front. So I don't know about that. Um, the former head of the Rotman School of University of Toronto for many, many years is because we have a smaller percentage of our university students that are in business schools, but it's just over 20% in both places right now. So that's not the issue either. Um, I, I, it's a bit of a cop-out, but in some degrees it comes back also to culture. It's almost the flip side of the mortgage one. Okay. We have a more of defensive risk averse culture than other countries, particularly the United States. And we have this growth model in Canada where we create small businesses at a good clip and they tend to grow to about the half a million dollar size and then sell out or stop growing and continue in that small business part because they get a favorable tax regime. But we don't see that as much that aggressive push as we see in the other states. And it's very interesting when you compare a chart of firm growth in Canada and the United States. We start faster, we grow faster initially, but then we plateau and the United States starts slower, but continues to grow. And I, I don't think you can chalk that up to policy reasons. Um, that's to some degree culture. And typically it's a different attitude of that the, the bankruptcy in Canada. If you declare bankruptcy, that's the end of your history. And the United States, you tend to come back another day. Really interesting. 
Um, there was a CD Howe shadow budget um, in terms of, I think, looking at sort of immigration. I don't want to spend too long on this, but I, I just wanted to get some of the numbers out of that report because I think you were you were looking at this, and this was, you know, the primary health care discussion came into it certainly, um, and where money needs to be spent going forward, really at the beginning of life and at the end of life. That that sort of within the healthcare discussion where where the story of immigration perhaps can help in areas where we have huge gaps and labor yeah. needs. Yeah, we, we know it's adding the demand pressure and we've certainly got the capacity pressure in our childcare spaces. We have most of the governments have now signed on the agreement with the federal government like Quebec did a long time ago to offer low costs, but we can't get the supply to meet that. We can't find and retain enough childcare workers and they don't have the capital budget. So that's an increasing pressure. But of course, as we've seen in the nursing field, because we, of course, we, we have this uh, about 5 million Canadians don't have regular access to primary care. And a lot of the answer is being provided through nurses, particularly nurse practitioners, but we only have 6,800 nurse practitioners, but we have a lot of foreign trade nurses, including nurse practitioners. And there used to be a very snail pace of recognizing their credentials, very picky that you're missing this course, now you gotta go back and start all over again. And we've seen a, a, a very remarkable acceleration in that process of recognizing the foreign credentials. So yeah, it, it, could add, it is adding to the demand side, but if we use immigration properly, we can address these bottlenecks as well. Um, how does automation work for some of the discussions of, again, gaps within the labor story? Well, how do you see that unfolding? That's the irony of the peak of this discussion from employers uh, in the last couple of years that they can't find workers. Why do you say that and then simultaneously you're not investing? I mean, you know, to pull out the economist trick, you got a production function and it's got capital and labor in it. <laughs> you got two components. If you can't find the labor part, why don't you lean more on the capital part, which includes more automation? So that's a bit of a surprise. Obviously, there's not every operation in the world, but speaking of operation, I mean, we, 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 we do have artificial intelligence or robotic surgeries right now. We do. Obviously, there are people, people are behind the scenes, but as I said, a lot of the things that maybe even 10 years ago, we said, you can't automate. Well, they're getting automated as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Da Vinci um robot next week actually with regards to healthcare but that yeah that's that goes down that side of things tell us about foreign direct investment where where that falls off a ledge where it still sings um is it a case of bad marketing what do we what do we need to do there well we have seized the worst of all possible worlds we have an image around the world that we are hostile to foreign direct investment and yet we've hardly ever turned away any investments so how do you get that image that we're hostile well, simultaneously not turning away anything. Yes, so I think in our records suggest we are open to foreign direct investment, but we have we have a critical moment coming up. Um, the electrification of the world, you know, the downside of that is it uses a lot of precious metals and they're not found in very many parts of the world, but they're found in Canada. And our process suggests 15 to 20 years from start to the beginning of a mining operation. Well, if you decided you want to do it, we can't have that. And so far, the major interest and in going. Sorry, you can't. Route, sorry to interrupt, but you can't have the ten to fifteen years. It's got to be faster. Yeah, no, fifteen to twenty years typically. 
okay. from the start of an application of the process to actually getting going. We have so many different layers, partly because we have split jurisdiction between federal and provincial. And we are again seeing more interest from foreign players than we are seeing from Canadian players. And it's reminiscent between 2000 and 2008, most of the large mining companies in Canada sold out. They were typically third or fourth in the world, and they had an opportunity to become first or second, but instead of doing that, sold out. And you look at Australia, for example, if they were third or fourth, they merged and bought up other things and became first and second. So again, it's, it speaks to that culture. Their stock prices were very high, and there was an attitude, hey, that's pretty good. We get a great rate of return on that as shareholders, as management. Let's just sell out. So... Okay, so that said, so Canadian investors investing in, if they want, uh, the minerals sector, uh, where does that kind of money get allocated away from what? Into the, I mean, there's sort of a question of housing here. There's lots of questions. Where does the Canadian money go? Could it be redirected into these projects? Um, or does it have to come from foreign, foreign places? Like, what, oh, what I, do you see the, as the opportunities there? I, I have been caught in this sandwich for 30 years because when okay. I speak when I when I speak to people and operations looking for funding they say there's no funding available and when I speak to people who have funding they say there's no opportunities available and I always just want to get them all in the same room and just say you can't leave till you sort this out <laughs> because right. the people say there are opportunities and there's places to do it and, and we've seen it and we've seen in many cases foreign operations take those opportunities instead of Canadians taking those opportunities okay you know, we, we as Canadians use this 10 to 1 rule, and the United States has more than 10 times our number of billionaires, and they have more than 10 times the number of people who are willing to be very patient with their investments. So there's definitely advantages there, but we still do have pockets of money. And of course, we've got huge pension funds in Canada as well. Yes, yes. Um, tell us, uh, there's a couple of questions here. So what part, um, Don, does energy play in Canada's inflation factor? Well, Energy, particularly gasoline prices, were a big part of it at the beginning, but they aren't anymore. Uh, relative to where they were two and three years ago, oil prices, for example, are quite a bit higher, but they've been flashers of late. So inflation is, takes a further increase. So that's not so much of a picture of it. We, we are seeing, and I'm coming back to meld that with your previous question, I mean, we're seeing quite an impressive shift to cleaning up our energy sources in Canada. It's very unfortunate we saw the, the delay in Alberta considering renewables. Hopefully that will end and we'll get back on track of that. But you see a, an economy that's been centralized on oil and gas leading into the renewables and the cleaner force of energy sources. So we can do it and we are doing it to some degree. Um, another question. Any comments on the uh, population trap and what it will take to get out of it? Well, in my own view, let's recognize immigration built the country to a, to a large degree. Um, not forgetting for one moment the country was founded by the indigenous people and they're still a very extremely important part of the economy uh, and the country. But most of us, like us, are, are immigrants and most immigrants have been economically successful themselves and brought success to the country. So we do not write that off by any means. But the increase has been too fast and too soon, too many. Uh, we, we have these capacity strengths in housing, we have this capacity constraint in health, and we're not able to bridge that in the short term. So relative, instead of just capping the immigration numbers the, the way they did, 
I would prefer for a while, not forever necessarily, but for a while to bring them down and then let's work harder to build these capacity constraints. It's kind of weird that we open the door in the immigration numbers, but we continue to constrain the number of physicians that can be trained as an example. How does that make any sense? You know, we have the phys physician supplies increasing about 1% a year, but the population is increasing 3%. And we already have five to 6 million people that don't access to a primary caregiver. You know, it's a classic example in policy where the departments and the policies work in isolation of each other and they didn't figure this out all together. Do you think um, taxes south of the border, north of the border are, are going up? Uh, you know, that to answer that question, of course, you'd have to get your crystal ball of what's going to happen in the U.S. election. My but maybe, guess, maybe, in, maybe in either situation, the, the debt load is really the question. The debt load is huge. Uh, Trump didn't care about it whatsoever in his first term. I see no reason why he'll care about it in the second term. And he endlessly wants to create credit for his so-called corporate tax reform, which was not a corporate tax but reform, you, by the but way. But do you think, actually, I only have a minute here. Do you think that tax, because of the debt situation, I mean, Canada is dealing with it as well. Um, do, do you see that as a recipe for taxes going up? That's really the question. I, I don't see that happening in either country. Uh, other than our consumption taxes, there's plenty of scope to increase the GST, but I don't see any government taking that. Most of us face over 50% marginal personal income tax rates, and it's not the wealthy that face the highest one. A family with a child benefit, for example, could easily face a 70% marginal tax rate. Earn one more dollar, you lose 70% of it. I don't think you can push that. I said we're more competitive now in corporate tax rates than we were in the 1990s, but other countries have lowered them as well. So I don't think there's any scope to do that. And business investment is already in the basement. Really? So I, I, I think we'll see a spending restraint, not like the mid-1990s at a slower pace, but I don't think we'll see it through tax increases. And I don't see that happening in the United States. And just as we close, give us a sense of sort of the story of cuts. We, we know what the market is priced in. Again, south of the border, north of the border, different stories, different questions around the soft landing um, sort of equation and how we get there. But in Canada, what, what do you think on the cut story? Do you think we'll see quite a few this year? Yeah, I think we'll see a hold at the next meeting in March and probably the first one, a, a measly 25 basis points in April. I don't necessarily think that will be a string of 25s. I think then there'll be a hold and maybe another 25. Maybe we'll, I, you mentioned the CD House. I'll mention it again. Their Monetary Policy Council called for 4.5 by July of this year, 3.75 by next year. I don't know if we'll get from 5 to 3.75, but maybe we'll be looking at 4. Remember, the Bank of Canada's estimate of a neutral rate that's consistent with 2% inflation in the long term is 2 to 3. So that would still be somewhat high. And just remind people, like, we're not going back to near zero interest rates. I hope we're not going back to near zero rates. They caused a lot of this problem. They, they're they the fundamental reason we ended up with so much debt. The story for another day fits with housing, fits with everything, doesn't it? Don Drummond, thank you for joining us today to pick through the story of what the Bank of Canada did yesterday in holding and where it goes from here. We're always grateful for you joining us. All the very best. Oh, very enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.